This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I was tempted to begin this segment with the music from the James Bond movie Diamonds Are Forever, but there are copyright issues with that, and that could be problematic. Let's just start by saying a California company called NDB has announced that they intend to manufacture so-called nano-diamond batteries. This news has really lit up the tech community, no pun intended, because according to NDB, these batteries will pack an energy density that will make lithium-ion batteries look ridiculous. Here's the shocking part. They're claiming that a nano-diamond battery can supply power for at least 10 years, with some designs lasting, now get this, more than 20,000 years. I'm lucky to get a week's worth of use from my handheld transceiver battery, much less 20 millennia. So how does this work? Well, at the heart of each cell is a small piece of recycled nuclear waste. Wait a minute, I know what you're thinking, but hang in there. The battery uses graphite harvested from nuclear power plants. This is graphite that's absorbed radiation from nuclear fuel rods and the graphite itself has become radioactive. Untreated, it's high-grade nuclear waste. This is dangerous, difficult stuff and it has an awfully long half-life. However, this graphite is rich in carbon-14 isotope, which undergoes decay into nitrogen, releasing an antineutrino and an electron in the process. NDB takes this graphite, purifies it, and uses it to create tiny carbon-14 diamonds. The diamond structure acts as a semiconductor and a heat sink, collecting the charge and transporting it out. The graphite is encased in a layer of non-radioactive, lab-generated carbon-12 diamond. This layer contains the energetic particles, prevents radiation leaks, and acts like a super-hard, protective, and tamper-proof layer. To create a battery cell, several layers of this nano-diamond material are stacked up and stored in a tiny integrated circuit board, and a small supercapacitor is used to collect, store, and instantly distribute the charge. In the end, what you get is a miniature power generator that never needs charging. Part of what makes these batteries so cost-effective to manufacture is the fact that some of the suppliers of the original nuclear waste will pay NDB to take it off their hands. But what about radiation? Well, NDB says the radiation levels from a cell will be far less than the natural background radiation that you encounter every day. If part of the cell fails, the active nano-diamond part can be recycled into another cell. And once they reach the end of their lifespan, which again could be up to somewhere north of 20,000 years, they leave nothing behind but harmless byproducts. Even the United Nations is becoming excited about this technology. According to Dr. Shaw Taylor, UNESCO chairman, quote, These power supplies have the potential to solve the major global issue of carbon emissions in one stroke, without the expensive infrastructure projects, energy transportation costs, or negative environmental impacts associated with alternative solutions such as carbon capture at fossil fuel power stations, hydroelectric plants, turbines, or nuclear power stations. 
Their technology's ability to deliver energy over very long periods of time without the need for recharging, refueling, or servicing puts them in an ideal position to tackle the world's energy requirements through a distributed solution with close to zero environmental impact and energy transportation costs." Unquote. The company claims to have completed a proof of concept at this point, and they're ready to begin building its commercial prototype once its labs reopen after the COVID shutdown. A low-powered commercial version is expected to hit the market in less than two years, and the high-powered version is projected for five years' time. NDB says it's well ahead of its competition with patents pending on this technology. Should this pan out as promised, it's hard to see how this won't be a revolutionary power source. Each battery would be its own nearly inexhaustible green power source, turning nuclear waste into useful energy. I'm on the telephone with Paul Gilbert, KE5ZW, and Paul is ARRL's Director of Emergency Management. In fact, he just came on board, uh, what, a couple of months ago, Paul? Uh, August 17th was my first day. August 17th, okay. And I wanted to discuss with Paul, when it comes to technology, how he feels the amateur radio public service component is going to uh, to fair and actually how it's doing now for that matter. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Paul? Well, technology is advancing, especially with the digital communications, and they're great, but you can never, well, to maintain interoperability, you can never get away from what I call the lowest common denominator, which is a good old analog voice. The new systems offer a lot of good features and good possibilities, but you always need to maintain that lowest common denominator for the ultimate in uh, interoperability. And amateur radio, we've got, is, you know, we've got all kinds of really nice new technology, and it is being used, ranging from the Arden Network to Fusion, which uh, D-Star has been around a while, and DMR, which is actually a commercial uh, radio, public safety commercial radio uh, emission. And a lot of people are adopting that. Now, you mentioned analog FM and interoperability. Uh, is analog FM still the chief uh, means to communicate in amateur radio public service applications? Yes, sir. Yes, it is. It's still the number one means because everybody, if you've got a, it doesn't matter what, whether you have a D-Star, a Fusion, a DMR, a P25, whatever radio you have, if it's, you know, commercial or um amateur radio, analog FM, they all have it. It's the lowest common denominator. And are repeaters still able to be uh, operational in situations, say, well, like you have down there in Texas, you know, the hurricanes you encounter? Are the repeaters sufficiently hardened that they're still able to stay online? In most cases, especially if they're co-located with a public safety site, which usually means that they're on the emergency power system, or they have battery backup. I would say that, that uh, as a general rule, the hardening of the amateur repeaters, just like the hardening of all the public safety and commercial systems, has gone up significantly since Hurricane Harvey. And that was the hurricane that devastated Houston with all the flooding, as I recall. Yes, that is correct. It got the Corpus Christi area and then marched up the coast. And uh, they had, you know, like, 
I don't remember exactly, but I want to say 30-something inches of rain in the Houston area. Think, things flooded in Houston during Harvey that had never flooded before. So Analog FM is still viable. It's, I mean, you hear people saying, oh, the repeaters are all dead. There's nobody on the air on Analog FM. But from what you're saying, Paul, for public service at least, it still works. Absolutely. As I said, anybody that has a radio it'll have analog FM in it. So it doesn't matter whether you have an old ICOM uh, 2AT or if you have the newest and greatest uh, Kenwood or Yezu Fusion radio. They all have analog FM. What's your feeling about, when you mentioned digital, uh, D-Star, DMR, Fusion, what role do you see them playing or what role do they play now, if any, in public service? It depends very locally. Here in the uh, Austin, Cedar Park, Austin area, the fusion system has been built up quite a bit. So it is in real popular. It's a local option. It depends a lot upon what the local people want to build out, what they want to work with. I believe it's the state of Alabama that has a very significant D-Star network and has been very successful with it. Uh, DMR, the digital mobile radio service, uh, also sometimes known as Moto Turbo. It was originally done by or pushed in the United States by Motorola. And um, there's uh, lots and lots of DMR repeaters out there today. And they all they are linked in many cases. There's a pretty good link network of DMR here in Texas. So most of these systems being linked, uh, do you see that as a major asset in uh, public service? Yes, I do, because you can cover with a handheld radio, in a lot of cases, a very large area. There are several linked systems here in Texas, and I know there are in California and many, many, many other states that allow you with a simple handheld radio to cover, well, the whole state. And in, in, in times of need, that's in, absolutely invaluable. Now, it's also means that you have to harden your links and you have to, in some cases, rely on the Internet. And we all know that sometimes that is questionable, but it's getting a whole lot better every year. Now, I was going to ask you about that. Those links, are they, are they mostly Internet or many of them RF? Uh, most of them are internet because it's so easy to link on the internet and the radios and the repeaters and the systems in many cases come with the ability already built in to link via something like the internet. Whether it could be the true internet or it could be a, a WAN, a wide area network, some using something like uh, Arden. I'm going to show my ignorance here, Paul. Uh, the repeater sites that have internet capability uh, are these hooking into the network through fiber lines? Are they high speed or are they just essentially perhaps one step above dial-up? Um, it's going to have to be faster than dial-up. Uh, you're probably looking at least DSL speed, and I know DSL is kind of going away. So it's in many, many cases, it's true Internet. It may not be as fast as you could buy from some commercial provider, but it's on the true Internet because you do have to have a fairly good speed uh, and bandwidth. Now, you also mentioned Arden and uh, the high-speed multimedia, the uh, whatever label you want to stick on it. Hamwan is another. Uh, what role is that playing right now, would you say, in public service use? The main thing it plays that I'm aware of is as backbones and the ability to move large amounts of data whether it's pictures or ICS 213s or voice traffic or uh, messages of any email or whatever, 
but it, it's one of the primary things for it right now. Now, I know that uh, there are people that are working on what they call ad hoc nodes where they would go into um, like a like a shelter that has has no internet capability or has bad internet capability and they've got a thousand people in there so they go in and they set up this network with wi-fi and then they can get people can use that can log into that and you know tell their loved ones that yeah we're here we're okay is that what some people paul call the last mile solution or am i thinking of something else no that that would be a la- that would be considered a last mile solution. So they're bridging the gap between an area that has no internet coverage because of the disaster, out say who knows how many miles to where the internet is still up and running, and then connecting there. Is that how it works? That's basically how it works. Yes, sir. And are they using the high speed multimedia for that? They could be. They could be just using something simple as like some just high-speed uh, nodes of some kind, not particularly ardent, but they could be using a commercial product that's just simply off-the-shelf, so a commercial off-the-shelf, components off-the-shelf. Well, you know, I have to ask you, Paul, to drag out your crystal ball here and uh, <laughs> gaze into the future. Um, <laughs> because, of course, everything is changing, technology is changing. How do you see amateur radio... Well, how can I put this, Paul? How do you see amateur radio coping with technological change that's coming over us and will be coming over us in the years to come? We're going to have to evolve. We're going to have to be be relevant to our served agencies because the cell phone networks, the public safety systems are becoming better and better and better. Since Hurricane Harvey, they spent and just an enormous amount of money on sites, sites on wheels, colts, cell site on light trucks, cows, cell site on wheels, and just all kinds of things, tower trailers, uh, portable dispatch centers, command modules, you know, all those kind of things. The public safety people have spent that money. And so now what happens is the, our served agencies, their infrastructure doesn't fail as much. And so we have to find a new niche to make to continue to make ourselves relevant. Now then, am I saying that this is going to be the case in all places? No. But I just know that in some places when there's been, you know, pretty good size events, hurricanes, wildfires, whatever, amateur radio was not used as much because the public safety and the commercial infrastructure, it didn't go down. But where it did go down, we were called. So how do we remain relevant? You adapt. Just adapting to to whatever is going on. Yeah. Uh, I got told a very interesting story out of uh, the wildfires that uh, there was a sheriff's department that called up the Aries group and they needed some help. They needed help rounding up animals. Now, and they went and the Aries group went and helped the sheriff's department round up, you know, animals. And uh, did they use ham, ham radio? Yes, absolutely, between themselves. But they weren't talking so much on behalf of their served agency. They were using their communications, the ham radio, in what I would call a tactical situation, uh, communicating between themselves and doing the job that they had been asked to do. That's an example of adapting. Okay. And I recall you and I spoke briefly a while ago, and you'd mentioned something that was intriguing where 
you also gave the example of a ham, say, in a, an emergency operation center, who isn't working with ham gear at all, who is working with a, you know, the sat phone or whatever is available, using his or her communication skills that they've learned in amateur radio, but applying them to other services. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. That actually occurred during the wildfires. And it also occurred during the hurricanes, like Hurricane Laura, uh, where hams, because they're used to talking on a radio, and believe it or not, some police and some fire guys, they're, they're not, you know, they're not real chatty on a, on a radio. And so, you know, hams, oh yeah, they'll, they'll pick up that microphone and go to town. And many hams, of course, also know what to do if something goes wrong, technically. Uh, a ham can also, when I was thinking back to the, uh, the satellite phone example, a ham knows that you can't set up a satellite phone can't right inside. inside a building, that you have to go outside. And so we bring that to the table as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we're more, you know, we're the technical, we're the subject matter experts. We're the SMEs in many, many cases. Uh, in a lot of counties and a lot of cities, that's one of the main things that the hams do is they not only are SMEs for the ham radio, but they're sometimes, especially in the small agencies where they're, you know, kind of budgetarily constrained or just, you know, isolated because, well, like Texas has some counties that there's more cows than there are people. Um that uh, the hams are the ones that uh, they're the, they're the technical experts. They're the like I said, the subject matter experts, and they're relied upon thusly. Absolutely. Well, Paul, if you had to say something to perhaps, and this could be the case, some Aries volunteers who might be listening to the podcast right now, what would it be in terms of how they should approach adapting to the future? If you're called up. You're called up as a resource. Now, your resource could be uh, sitting on a water crossing so that a commissioned firefighter or a commissioned police officer or somebody uh, could go do something else. Then you need to do that. If you're asked to hand out water or to unload a truck and you don't have anything going, like, like if you're not on a task or something right then, then I would ask that you help them because that makes goodwill. Technology is fun and fascinating, but we don't always get to do exactly what we would prefer to do. That's right. Well, thank you very much, Paul. That was informative. I appreciate it. Sure. No problem. Glad to help. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.